you know, you're singing about just how amazing the God's glory is and his awe and authority and wonder. You're probably all familiar with Isaiah 6, especially the first bit, you know, um, where it talks about the seraphim. You know what seraphim are? Ever heard of seraphim? They're really odd creatures. They've got six wings and they're full of eyes. So they have to book a whole month and they go to the optometrist. It's just amazing. <laughs> and conversations are very difficult to have because you're not quite sure which way to be looking at. But um, can't, wait to, uh, can't wait to meet one. Uh, but more seriously, you know, they say holy, holy, holy. And then it talks about uh, the earth is full of his glory. You know that. But actually, sorry to say this, but in Hebrew, you can actually read that the fullness of the earth is God's glory. And that's really interesting to think about. I have a friend who loves astrophysics. He says, you know, the sun's really big, but it's just dead boring in that there's not much to change. I mean, it's big and it's powerful and stuff goes on. But if you want to talk about incredible diversity, just get nine square metres in a rainforest somewhere. Our earth is just absolutely extraordinary. And I think it really does testify to God's great character. This abundance of amazing, flourishing diversity. It's just teeming with greatness. The fullness of the earth is God's glory, which means when you have that really good coffee that you get not from Sydney but from Melbourne, <laughs> it's okay to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Right? So when you go out and eat food, remember that God gave you your taste buds and it's all right actually to give great thanks and praise when you're having just some fantastic, you know, um, well, carbonara in my case, but whatever it might be. Or, is that okay? It's, and he's not our enemy. He's for us. It's absolutely amazing all the incredible gifts he's given to us. Right? He's given us all things richly for our enjoyment. That's stunning. Now, not selfishly. That's a different matter. And so I want to kind of talk about that and kind of get into this topic this way. Are we up here? Let's try. We're up there. Okay, so that's me in a former life. <laughs> not really, but, uh, you know, everyone's talking about passion these days, right? Passion's the big thing. What's your passion? And I remember some years ago talking to a, a well-travelled itinerant speaker and he said a speaker needed to have three things. First of all, they needed passion. Yeah. There's got to be something about um, life in what they're doing. Secondly, he said it was really important to have something bigger than yourself. For a speaker to be persuasive, they had to point to something that was bigger that would actually call for a commitment beyond just what they were doing themselves. We'll come back to that in just a moment a sense of purpose, and then actually knowledge. It really does help to know what you're talking about. <laughs> you put those three things together. And can I suggest in some ways this is more important than ever. There was a survey done, uh, I think, in the, the Sun uh, in the UK of 1,500 Brits. And what they discovered that 51% uh, of English people, based on that number, thought their only reason for being on earth was to enjoy themselves. Right? Interesting. About 37% thought it was to make other people happy. And that might be correlated to the fact that about one in four people in England still actually see themselves as Christians. Might be a correlation there. But the interesting news was this, and you can see the picture of this young woman. Uh, what they discovered was that 89% of people between 16 and 29 said that their lives lacked meaning and purpose, no sense of direction. That's interesting. Yeah. And actually only about 1% of those that age group identified with the Anglican church. So there's a huge correlation between non-identification with the church and this sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness. Right? Now, if you were here this morning, 
You might have heard me talk about how the gospel gave us modernity and how the Chinese know that. I think there's an interesting correlation between those two things. That is, and I'm not alone in thinking this, I think they're profoundly connected. What the UK has lost, apparently, in its young people in terms of passion, purpose and knowledge, is they've lost the thing that was the very engine room of the Western world's development over the last couple of centuries, and that's Jesus and the gospel. That's what they've lost, right? And those things are profoundly connected. Now, I think underlying this are a range of issues. But I wonder if a couple of them are worth noticing. In the Western world, economy is all about growth. Everything's about growth, right? And, of course, my personal happiness. That's what, what is it, 51% of English people think in the survey. That's what matters most. Well, the thing is, folks, both of those are failing and they will fail. Jeremiah said that a 1,000 years ago. He warned of building broken systems that simply aren't sufficient to sustain us. Growth without some kind of final purpose is meaningless. No? It's got to have more than that, right? Just not growth for growth's sake. And what about my own happiness? Well, actually, if all I'm concerned is my, my own happiness, that just makes the world smaller and smaller. Do you know that? You want to become a small person? Make it all about your own happiness. You'll alienate yourself from everybody else. There's a famous German philosopher called Nietzsche. Anyone heard of him? Some of you have really good. It's wonderful to know that in a Pentecostal church. Boy, thank you. A lot of times are changing. Right? <laughs> well, only because you know your culture. He said the last human beings would be marked by two things, fashion and fitness. Wow. He said that would be the mark of people who no longer knew what it meant, meant to be human. Isn't it great that no one here really cares much about fashion, at least as far as I can see, certainly up the front. <laughs> and as for fitness, <laughs> well, um, that was a bit cheeky, wasn't it? Uh, oh, well. Now, you know, I think it might be worth asking, and probably the little that you know of me, you might be surprised, I'm going to ask the question, if Jesus had something to say about this. And I think he does, but perhaps not quite what we expected. There's an Australian chap who made an infamous film about Jesus. Anyone remember this movie? Sure you do. Right? And uh, if you're into film reviewers, I think the, anyone enjoy films and film reviewers? For me, the best film reviewer was Roger Ebert. He was just brilliant, right? And when he reviewed The Passion, he actually thought it was a great movie, which was not the consensus. But he said one of the things that happened that he noticed in his review is that in the modern world, passion has got mixed up with, with romance and even lust, which is not what it meant in its Latin origins, which is where passion comes from. Because there, as you can see from the picture, it described Jesus suffering and his agony. What's your passion? How does that correlate to the Jesus whom we call our Lord. Whoa. They're actually Aramaic for whoa. <laughs> and even whoa, baby. No. <laughs> so um, later on, it broadened out to embrace Jesus' great love for humanity that made him willing to lay down his life like this. And we talk about Paul this morning. If you were here, right, that's what marks him out. He, all he wanted to know was Christ and to be found in him. So the thing that I'm interested in tonight and what I'd like to chat with you about is what was it that informed Jesus' passion? Right? 
What was it that enabled him to do this? And uh, if you know anything about me, you'll also know that uh, you can't really understand things without a context. We're going to have to spend some time on context. Uh, you would know that. Any text without a context is a pretext. Absolutely. So you've got to hear it in its context. But I'm wondering, you know, in, in, the se- in, in that setting of Jesus coming to Jerusalem, what might he say to us about our understanding of passion? I wonder if it's possible if we've actually turned passion itself into an idol, that it's become an end in itself, right? Just a thought. So the context of Jesus' passion. Now, it's pretty clear when you read the Gospels, Jesus does something that's absolutely staggering. He plans so he's going to get killed in Jerusalem on the Passover. I mean, he does that. It's incredible. What kind of first century person is going to ever get it into their head that their death in Jerusalem on Passover is going to change the world? You ever thought about that historically? No one believes that. No one. We're so used to it. We're just like, oh, yeah, but, you know, this is stunning. Where does this come from? But he plans this. Like, who does he think he is? That's a really good question. You might want to think about answering that one. So his final journey to Jerusalem is to die on the Passover and in Jerusalem that's meant to be the city of the great king. And I think it's significant for three reasons that are up here, if you can see through me, and hopefully I'm transparent enough. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay, we'll just leave that. My mind has gone off into places it ought not go. So right back here again, focusing on the text. Thank you. First of all, Jerusalem. What's so special about Jerusalem? It's meant to be the place where God's presence dwells. Without the I am, Israel could not even become. It's because Yahweh is the I am that Israel can be. He's he's their identity. Without his presence, Israel's existence is meaningless. And they know that. But the thing is, that presence left before the exile and it had never come back. And they knew that. They lived in ambiguity. For centuries, the temple was empty, the rebuilt one. It reminds me of Karl Barth. He's a famous German theologian. Have you heard of Karl Barth? Maybe, and more hands go up. My goodness, things are changing. He made this wonderful, I think, perceptive observation. He said, the reason Europeans stopped going to church was because they no longer found God there. That's what this is meant to be about, right? I have to keep reminding myself, folks, people come to church not to hear my opinions. They've come to encounter God. And my only role is to facilitate that. That's the only thing that really matters. Second thing, it's Passover. And you know about Passover. Passover is connected with the big E word in Israel's history. What's the center of their identity going back into the past? The Exodus, right? The whole five books, even Genesis is setting up for the Exodus, actually. And why is that? Because that's where you get to know Yahweh. We just talked about his presence in Jerusalem. So Passover, that's when Israel was embraced by Yahweh in this great saving act. He owned them as his people and they bound themselves to him in what was fairly, kind of, pardon me, a bloody celebration. They killed these oxen and half the blood they put on the altar and the other half over the people. Don't sit in the front row. (laughs) But the whole point of that was to say we have no life apart from our connection with Yahweh. That's what Passover was about. And, of course, this is the feast on which Jesus comes to Jerusalem to die. Hmm. 
And that identity of Israel with Yahweh was captured by that wonderful saying, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That's what defined them. Now, they celebrate Passover, not just remembering the past, but looking forward to a new one. Third point, Jerusalem was also meant to be the abode of Israel's Messianic king. And why was that important? Because it was never just about theology or nice ideas. You're actually meant to have a leader who looked like God and reflected exactly that character, right? God's concern has always been for the earth. You notice that? Remember we pray this all the time? Our Father right in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your kingdom go and take us with you. Is that what we pray? What did he teach us to pray? May your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven. No, on earth. It's always been about that. And that's Deuteronomy 4. God says to Israel, walk in my ways and the nations will say, what a wise people. When was the last time your local council came and said to you, we've been watching you and we're really impressed by the kind of people you are? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a criticism. That's an invitation, folks. That's what we're here for. And I've seen that happen again and again. It's a very, very powerful witness. What do we look like before the watching world? Now, I know for some people, this whole notion of kingship is second best. So I'm going to have to say just a few things about that, especially because we all love talking about leadership these days. Right? So um, I'm sure there's not what Saul looked like, but it's the closest picture I can find that had any quality to it. And, uh, you know, getting into kingship, I know people, when they read Samuel, which is where that whole issue comes up, uh, they tend to have the impression that kingship was not what God intended for people. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. That could get embarrassing. I'm not going to do that. But... If God did not want kingship, then he's got a problem because in Genesis, he promised the patriarchs that the kings would come from their line. Now, why would he say that if kingship wasn't part of his plan? So some of us actually, and we're a little bit kind of persistent in this, um, we're convinced that the issue in Samuel is not kingship. It's the kind of kingship. And if you look at the story, what had happened is Israel had just been terrified by this pagan king who was just a complete monster and they decided the only way to compete was to have a king like the nations. Right? And that's exactly what they got. They got Saul. You know what Saul's name means? You asked for it. <laughs> now, you know, God's not being petulant. He does all he can. He fills Saul with the Spirit, does all of that. The problem is, folks, the filling of the Spirit is not enough if we won't cooperate with that Spirit. Right? And that's what you see going on. So God did everything he could do. He said, okay, you want a king like the nations? I'll give you the best one I can. I'll fill him with the spirit. But he needs to cooperate with that. And he doesn't, unfortunately. And you watch Paul. He gives, into, uh, sorry, Saul, he gives away to his insecurities, his fear. He's feeling threatened. And it eventually destroys him. You can see this in the narrative, right? So the first thing that happens when he's about to be made king, he's hiding amongst the baggage. And that might sound really humble, except for the fact that he'd already had the prophet giving him a confirming word. He'd had three signs being given to him. This is not humility. This is fear and disobedience, actually. Right? So watch out for that pseudo-humility. When God's called somebody to do something, trust means doing it, right? And this fear actually undermines his entire life. It leads to his failing to obey. He was told one thing only, wait for me to come and offer sacrifice. And he saw the people melting away and he was afraid and so he stepped in and did it himself. And you have to say, I'm sorry, who told you, the king, 
that fearing popular sentiment was meant to be the guide to how you acted. You want to be a leader amongst God's people? Then the only person you want to care about is what God has to say. Doesn't mean you're arrogant about it. Doesn't mean that. But in the end, the only one whose word you're concerned with is the Lord. So this kind of insecurity leads to what? Well, an idolatrous overcompensation. You see that with Saul. Once small in his own eyes, what does he start doing? Now he starts building monuments in his own honour. <sighs> in whose honour? His own honour. So be wary of Christian leaders who want to leave a legacy. Our job is to point to Jesus. He alone resurrects. He alone gives the spirit. This is about him, isn't it? Uh, he's just the name he want exalted. Right? Yeah. You don't need to see Rick Watts' name over the library beside the church because I can't do anything for you, but I know the one who can, right? So then he invites David to serve him, and the moment David excels, what does he do? He wants to kill him because he's threatened and fearful. Right? And you realise what's going on. It's not about serving God at all. Well, finally, having refused to listen to God over and over, he ends up, the only place he can go to is a witch because rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. So a word to the wise, avoid this path at all costs. It is not a good one to take. So I know we know a little on the side there about kingship. Just You might have had some questions about that. But in the context of what we're doing here, against all this background, we've got three things going on. God's absence. He wasn't in the temple, hadn't come back. A Passover memory with a hope for a new deliverance that hadn't happened yet. And the longing for a true king who looked like the God whose name they bore. Right? And then along comes Jesus. We're still talking about the passion. This is what's setting the scene for it, right? And into Jerusalem he comes. And there are two things going on in Jesus, right? He's not just a messianic king. He's actually the Lord among them. So he's both the presence and the messianic king. That's amazing how he does that, right? But he's both of those things. So now he comes to the city to embrace his passion and he immediately, what does he bump up against? A whole series of epic confrontations led by whom? The elites of God's people. Not outsiders, insiders. Yo. The very ones who are meant to lead God's people in the ways of righteousness are determined to bring him down. It sounds just like Isaiah's day where Zion, meant to be a light to the world, is actually full of bloodshed and murder. And in this case, it's the murder of the Lord himself among us, Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, uh, and where's all this happening? In the temple, the very heart of God's presence and Israel's identity. And what we're going to see is this is the last time Jesus teaches publicly in Israel. This is his last words. So this is a very weighty moment. You got that? Is the climax of the story. Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. No, not quite. That's, <laughs> right? But you got the sense. This is critical. And notice the very first controversy happens to be about loyalty. And it's a really interesting combination. You've got the Pharisees and the Herodians, and these guys can't stand each other. But what unites them is Jesus is a threat to both of them. And so they'll get into bed even though they can't stand one another. It's kind of superficial holiness. It's really about just themselves. And these guys are all into political manoeuvring with Rome. Right? They're united by the one thing. It's Jesus. And just as a lesson to learn from this, folks, it's stunning 
to what lengths of unholy alliances some people will go when their power and control is threatened. The stuff that goes on to preserve that, right? And what's it all over? It's about money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? What a surprise. <laughs> and, of course, these two guys, these groups have thought hard about this. They know whatever happens, they've got Jesus. Whatever answer he gives, they've got him. You know the question, right? Should we pay taxes to Rome? And if he says yes, the people will hate him and it's on Passover and expecting their deliverance. If he says no, the Romans are all there waiting to squash any uprising. They've got him. Whatever answer he gives, he's dead meat from their point of view. Right? They've thought about this. And you can almost smell the arrogance. Oh, my goodness. Oof, right? And... You know, it's pungent with this treacherous sense of giving him deference. Oh, teacher, we know you teach the ways of right, da, 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 and we have got you, buddy. Oh, it's just... There's another Aramaic word for that, I think. You can almost see them preening in the mirror of their own smugness as they come with this question, okay? And you know, have you ever seen anything like that? Maybe not, but I live in a world where, you know, it's all about looking good as an academic... And I have seen those preening questions that are asked. Well, oh, good. I just have a small question. It's actually a whole bunch of torpedoes in the water, right? <laughs> and, and it's not about the question. It's all about the surpassing wisdom of the questioner. You ever seen that kind of stuff? Yeah, and it doesn't just happen with academics. I don't get too smart, okay? <laughs> and then Jesus comes up with an absolutely gobsmacking response. I mean, it's just, how does he do this? It's just incredible. And, of course, what's going on is they're so blinded by their agenda, what you might call idolatry, that they don't even see what's right in front of them. So what does Jesus say? He says, bring me a denarius. And then I just imagine him saying, oh, look, you're Jewish people, and what are you meant not to have? Images. Oh, my goodness, and what's on this coin in your hot little hand? Oh, and pray tell, where did you get this from? In the temple of all places. I mean, can you just hear this? Right? This, he, this is stunning. It's just, um, I'm getting very excited. It's absolutely brilliant, as you can tell, right? Uh, and if you ever, I don't know, well, hopefully you'll pick that up now. It's just such a brilliant retort because now he's nailed them already without saying a word. Oh, look what you've got, right? How come you've got this idolatrous coin, you great paragons of holiness? It doesn't have to say a word. It's just smack, smack, smack. In love, of course. But, and of course, you know, his answer, don't you? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we all know the Caesars of this world. Money always comes first for them. Everything is economics. How can you maintain an empire if you don't control the money? And then Jesus said, give to God what is God's. Let the emperor stamp his cold, hard image on his cold, hard cash. God has stamped his image on living people. Stunning, right? And by the way, right, who actually backed the right horse? Imperial Rome has long gone, but the sun never sets on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So can I say something? Folks, can I suggest you there's something of eternity in putting People first. Right? Brilliant. Okay? And this is our Lord, right? Now, I shouldn't get smug. And if you ever see me behaving in ways that don't put people first, I give you all authority to come and, you know, give me some 
what is it, um, what might that say, applied the a foot of learning to this, no, the foot of education to the seed of learning or something, I think it was his expression. <laughs> and you feel free to do that. You need to hold me accountable to this stuff. You ever see me behaving in ways that actually puts other stuff ahead of people, I'm in serious trouble. Then the Sadducees turn up and they've got their shot here, right? And for them, oh, we don't believe in the resurrection. They have this cock and bull yarn about some woman with seven husbands or something and yeah, equally conceited and self-assured, and even more quickly sent scuttling away, covered in confusion. Right? Here they are trying to do their big thing in front of the crowds. It's the stage in the Passover, right? in front of all of the people of Israel. They're trying to impress them, right? and they get Jesus' response. Is not this the reason you are wrong? You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Whop! <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading some intention into that, but can you just imagine what it would be like for these guys? This is their big moment, and they just fail 500%. Okay? Oh, now, I don't think Jesus is saying this is what we should do. Uh, remember who he is. He's in the temple as the temple's Lord. It's the Lord's job to repay the arrogant, not mine. Yes. Okay? okay? So let the Lord be the Lord, and we will leave that to him. Now, I suspect the sequence of these stories are not accidental, folks. There's a relationship between loyalty and resurrection. And what is it? I think Mark, who wrote this gospel, is telling us that like Israel, we need to ensure that we give our wholehearted loyalty only to the only one who can raise the dead. That's the connection. You want to live forever? There's only one game in town, and he's called Jesus. Right? Wonderful. I think it is. It's brilliant. And can I suggest too, folks, that there'll be lots of times when we'll be tempted to do otherwise. People will want our loyalty. So I think if these stories are anything to go by, these temptations are going to come in situations where you have idolaters who can't even see beyond their limited categories, apparently because they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And yes, this happens even among God's people. Right? That should be sobering. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what's going to keep, you, keep us, you and I, from such disaster, from ending up like Saul or the blind Pharisees? What's going to preserve us here? Well, blessedly, right, we don't have to be like the Pharisees with their unholy alliances or the Sadducees who don't get it. There's a more honest chap watching this. We're going to talk about him right, at this point. So one of the scribes came here. He's a lawyer, by the way. That's what scribes are. He heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, now he's impressed, right? Yeah. He's not trying to be a smart, uh, what's the word, smart bottom. There you go. Okay. Um, now be nice. I don't know where your mind went there. Just can't behave yourself. Okay. <laughs> and he asked him, which commandment is first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Where is your passion? And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe answered, said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, let me be blunt about this. If you're not loving people, your tithing's not worth a cracker. 
right? And I know the often preached algebra of blessing, right? But you need to hear this from Jesus. And this guy gets it. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. This is a wise guy, right? What does he say to him? You are not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any question. I wonder why. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> no, no, no. No, that was him. That was him, right? Uh, we got an expert in the Jewish law, uh, obviously impressed by what Jesus does. Not that Jesus needs his affirmation. In fact, Jesus is the one who affirms him by saying, you're not far from the kingdom. He's not there yet. But in affirming Jesus' teaching, he's not far. Hang around a bit, mate, and we'll show you how to actually get into this. Now, I think there's something wonderful about this guy. He's no respecter of persons. He's a really well-trained elite guy. He could have looked down his nose at Jesus because Jesus doesn't have the training he does. And one of the things I keep saying to my students, right, you start getting your master's degree, you think you're better than everyone else, I can guarantee God is going to take the person in your church that you think is the least likely and speak to you through them. Just to take you down a few pegs to remember what this is all about, right? Okay? And I think it's a really good thing. And if God loves you, he'll do that to you sooner rather than later. So just get ready for it, okay? And he doesn't look down, you know, his nose because Jesus comes from Galilee where all the kind of rural locals are and he comes from the big smoke. None of that either, right? And that, we shouldn't do that either, folks. And I'll be honest with you. I'm just back in Australia for three years. I'm not really part of this. I haven't been part of it for 21 years. But I know there are different groups in different localities that think they're better than other people. Two words, stop it. No, not about that, okay? There's something wonderful about this man. He's rightly impressed by Jesus' decisive, shattering and unanswerable questions. And what he doesn't know is he's going to be the last person in history to get to ask Jesus a public question in all of Israel. He doesn't know that. Whoa, right? It'll never happen again. I have to say, it's a really good question. It's the one that others should have asked before him. Which commandment is first of all? I want to say a few things just about that, right? We're talking about passion. There are 613 commands in Torah. And for the person who can rattle them off right now, I will give you a big sloppy kiss. Any takers? I thought not. Okay. <laughs> you look a bit shocked over there. You're okay. <laughs> My kisses aren't that sloppy. <laughs> Who is this guy? Who invited him into this church? <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> uh, Lord, it's the woman. I mean, it's the pastor you gave me. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot to remember. What are the key ones? What are the big ones I need to know? And there's a question that lots of people ask, right? And, and, you know, he's a clever bloke. And one of the points of being educated is you learn to ask the right questions. That's part of the education thing. But here's the deal, right? You want to write this down, actually. Every question presupposes it knows something of the answer. Every question presupposes it knows something of the answer. Now, the underlying point here is just because someone asks a question, you don't have to answer it. So I have people talk to me about sexual practice. What do you think about da-da-da? And my response is, that's an interesting question. I have a question for you. What does it mean to be human? Right? Because underlying that other question is, oh, I can just do whatever I want. I'm autonomous. 
And I'm saying, I think that's an inadequate view of being human. I won't talk about sexual practice until we get sort of what it means to be human. Right? So this guy, I mean, genuine, I don't think he's trying to be a prat or perverse or anything like that, right? But he's just, and he thinks there's one great commandment. But Jesus corrects him. Oh, sorry, mate, there's actually two. Whoops. Now, what I love about this guy is he takes no offense at being publicly corrected by Jesus. No, that's something special. And he has no trouble admitting Jesus' superiority. So, you want to find someone to run your church? If they don't know how to say sorry, keep them far away from with a barge pole. Don't go near them. If someone can't say sorry, they don't know who Jesus is. And you don't want someone like that. This guy, however, teacher, you're right. Happy to admit that in front of everyone. I love that about this guy. And it seems to me, to get now to the point of all of this with that context, to give it some kind of uh, intensity, if you like. Here, Jesus states with all the unsurpassed authority of his being both the Lord, Yahweh among us, and the Messiah, those core things about which we, as God's people, should be passionate and wholehearted. That's what he's talking about here. And don't forget where this is happening. It's in Jerusalem, on Passover, in the temple. It's last public teaching. And it's his response to the last public question he will ever be asked. That's got to tell you we should sit up and pay attention, right? And the very first one is this first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, you know, it's, I know a little bit of Hebrew, and I can probably say this in Hebrew, it used to be showing off, but uh, it's a very kind of pithy statement, and it's very hard to translate into English and to capture everything. But if you know languages, you'll know that, right? You, every time you translate, you lose something. Some of you know Italian, right? And you know there are Italian words that are just no English, no English equivalent. You have to use five to try and capture it, right? Now, your New Testament's like that. It's in English. It's going to have to do that all the way along, right? Uh, which means, guess what? Everyone's going to start studying Greek, aren't they, Pastor Mark? Yep. And you'll be leading. No, no, it's okay. Sorry. The Lord still loves you all. It's all good. Okay. But there are a couple of things going on here. And it's, first of all, Israel is to worship only Yahweh. Only him. Nothing else. Yahweh alone, right? But at the same time, this Hebrew word achat actually means unique, not just one, but unique in the sense of Yahweh alone is God. There is no other like or beside him. It also catches his unity and integrity. He alone delivers. He alone can bless. He alone is entitled to their entire obedience. And that's what you get here. It's echoing the language of Deuteronomy, this is the first time in the whole Torah where Israel is commanded to love God. First time they're told to do that. And love is the language of covenant and Israel being God the Father's son. That's Exodus 4.22. Israel is my firstborn son. They're meant to love Yahweh with their whole being, unreservedly, exceedingly, even unto death. Where's your passion? What are you passionate about? What am I passionate about? They must safeguard Yahweh's word in their hearts. Those words would be the very warp and weft of their conversation and of their life. Everything is around this. They're to keep his words always before their eyes. Now, I remember when I was growing up, everyone knew the King Jimmy, right? That was the, like, um, not so much these days. I mean, just Bible in general. My parents used to quote scripture all the time. It's not something I hear much these days. That's not a good thing. You want to keep these words before your eyes, right? 
They must revere and serve and swear by Yahweh alone. Now, for the rabbis, right, these three phrases, heart, soul, and strength, actually summarize key things about being human, and that order really matters. The first one, with all your heart, for them, the heart was where you incline to good or evil. That's what heart means, right? With all your heart. Now, what's really intriguing about this is there's nothing here about abstract discussions of good and evil, right? Yahweh now defines what's good and evil. And that's why when you read Paul, he never has philosophical debates about the nature of goodness or evil because it's Yahweh who defines that. I think that's really powerful. The terrible error of the garden is that we thought it was about good and evil, and it's not. It's about Yahweh. That's a whole other discussion. But I need to say to you folks as Christians, you've got to get out of the grammar of good and evil because all that leads to is guilt and shame. The grammar of the scripture is life. That's what Yahweh does. That's where our creation begins, right? That's what the spirit is about, by the way. That's why it's the spirit that wars against the flesh. The Christian response to struggling with stuff is not try harder. It is not self-discipline. The answer is be filled with the spirit. It's the spirit that's going to take up that battle in you. It's the only way that's going to happen. Doesn't mean you don't need to cooperate. You do, but it starts with the spirit. Okay? And so to love Yahweh with all your heart means he becomes the center of every decision about what's the right or wrong thing to do. It's him. It's always his character because that's the only thing that brings life. And the really good news is this, folks. If you have the life of God in you, the goodness will take care of itself because goodness is a product of the life of God. That's what God is. That's why Paul can say be filled with the Spirit. And we're Pentecostals, okay? So if you haven't, had that powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, we do have something for you. It's really important, folks. I can't tell you how important that is. I just, uh, it'll change your life. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He will change your life. Okay, I need to keep moving on because the time's getting away from me. And I got caught last time, so I have to watch out for the musician coming. Thank you very much. It's it's absolutely fine that you do that. Okay. Um, So, all your heart, then all your soul. And soul means lifeness. It's not a stuff. The Greeks thought it was a stuff. Soul actually means lifeness. It's a difference between me standing up and five minutes after I had a severe heart attack and then I'm you know, horizontal on the floor. It's just lifeness, which means our whole existence as a person is meant to be focused on Yahweh. I have no existence apart from him. It's no longer I who lives, but what did Paul say? But Christ who lives in me. We talked about this this morning, right? I want to be identified with him. I might, all of this, that I might gain Christ, know him. And I know I'm a bit silly about this. I I keep talking about it, but it's just, I mentioned it this morning. You know, I appreciate the honouring and calling me professional, that kind of stuff. But, you know, thank you, but no thanks. Uh, If you really want to honour me, just call me your brother. Because the only family that's going to give you eternal life is not a PhD from Cambridge. It's being a brother and sister of Jesus, right? So if you want to do the real honouring, call me bro, okay? <laughs> That's going to do an awful lot more for me than any of the other stuff, folks. So can I just say, um, you know, do be aware of those who love titles. Probably suggested their identity is probably in the wrong place. And uh, that's not good when it comes to the resurrection. 
And, and when you're at the resurrection, it's too late for, oops, so you want to get that one sorted beforehand, okay? And then, you know, with all one strength, I've kind of skipped to the, um, the fourth one here, which means with all your resources, right? So with all my heart, he's the focus of my life in terms of decision-making. With all my soul, my lifeness is about him. And with all my strength, all my resources. Now, if you've been paying attention, Deuteronomy only has three, and Jesus adds a fourth one. Right? Hang on. This is something that Yahweh gave from Mount Sinai, and you're going to add something to it? Who the heck do you think you are? Okay. Indeed. And, of course, he says with all our understanding, which is really important for people like me, and I just I want to say this kindly, I think learning really does matter. It's true that God speaks through a donkey just the once. Right? But most of the people who give the stuff that we live with, people like Paul, Luke, they're sharp people, right? And that's not to say other folks don't matter, but, you know, don't dismiss godly education. That's not helpful, folks. Now, I understand, I really do understand why in our movement we were nervous about seminaries because they really were cemeteries. I know what they were like back then. But just because someone does it badly doesn't mean that we have to. We can do it well. You can have both of those things, right? I was chatting to Stephen Fogarty once. I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but we're talking about this issue, the danger of becoming a university. You think about it. How many Christian universities have survived the distance? And what makes us think we're going to be any different? Seriously, right? Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't be something we do, but when I talked to Stephen about it, he said, look, if we had to choose between Alpha Cruces becoming or being Christian and becoming a university, he would unquestionably choose remaining Christian. And I would applaud that. I think Jesus would too. You've got to realise how tricky that is. That's why if you're thinking of further education, you want to be really careful about the places you choose because they're not all the same. They can be really dangerous. So get, I think it's worth learning, but make sure you do it in a place where it's about honouring God. I have some friends who, um, they're actually personal friends, and they were professors at, you know, the, of biblical studies, theology, in the two most important universities in the land in the UK, Cambridge and Oxford, right? And it sounds like the pinnacle of everything. But I've talked to them. I know the cynicism and the pain and the bitterness because those places are hotbeds of ego. And they're not, not, not everyone's like that. But, right? And Paul gets this. That kind of knowledge is about puffing up. Right? So if, if you're going to get your education because you want people to call you doctor, you should go now. Leave the church. The church doesn't need you. Right? <laughs> if you want that degree because you want someone to be able to say you're a master in something, go, run away, lay bricks. Don't get involved in the kingdom of God. You don't hang on a cross proclaiming Professor Jesus. Sorry, I know I'm being, but it matters to me because I know how poisonous this can be. It's toxic, folks, because it starts with a man. And the only one who's worthy of our glory, who's, who's he? The only one? It's Jesus. Yes. Jesus alone, right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. I love that line. I will not boast in anything, no yes. gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. Right. Well, maybe, well, I think so, even if you don't. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Well, absolutely critical. Now, I want to say just a little thing about Cain's offering. We are going to get, we're almost on our way here, just a few pages to go. Why am I talking about Cain's offering? Because it's critical at the start of the story. 
What's going on with Cain's offering? There's all kinds of discussion about that, but it does impinge on this. Cain's offering is not a sin offering. We know what the Hebrew word for sin offering is, and it's not that. It's got nothing to do with sin. It's not even asked for by God. It's a special kind of offering called a minka offering. And that is an offering that you give. It's a free response of a grateful heart to the one who's given us everything we have. That's what it is, right? And that's why when it says Cain offered only some of his crops, that that's crucial. Because it's half-hearted devotion. And you'll get nowhere if your devotion to Jesus is half-hearted. He's very clear about that. I have to be the center in Christ alone. Passion. Passion. Cain and Saul might be books apart in the scripture, but they both illustrate that it's only a short step from half-hearted devotion to murder. And it's that serious, folks. Right? That's the correlation. Half-hearted devotion in the end will lead at some point to me destroying some other human being if I don't keep God at the centre. And, of course, that's why the next text comes up with love of neighbour. Right? As far as we know, Jesus is the first person in the history of kind of Jewish writings to lock these two things together. No one else did it in quite the same way as he did, emphatically, right? And what he means is a wholehearted devotion actually is reflected in loving my neighbour as myself. And you can't separate them. And it makes sense because only people are made in God's image. But actually, look at the larger context of Leviticus. And this is what it says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am Yahweh. It's not talking about sharing your toilet paper, right? which might be a good thing, provided you only support it. Right? My goodness, folks. Here are the two things. Vengeance. Am I bearing a grudge against somebody? Am I seeking to get my own back? They did this to me. I will never forgive them. They did this to me. Apparently, those two attitudes are to repudiate the very character of Yahweh. And you see what that means for us? We're a people who don't bear grudges. We don't seek vengeance. That would be to betray the character of God. He's not like that. So here Jesus, the Lord of the temple, puts these tightly together and let no one break asunder what God has joined together. Now, I don't think Jesus just dreamed this up. I think this actually, this is his ministry. It's about this. We talked about this on Saturday, right? The three great temptations, those of you who were there, right? and I won't develop those. Um, but the three big temptations Jesus faces that have to do with betraying his sonship is, will you use your power for yourself? That's what turned the stones into bread. He says, no. Secondly, will you coerce people? He says, no. Thirdly, will you manipulate them at the deepest point of their spiritual longings by jumping off the temple and turning God into some kind of spectacle? And he refuses to do that. What if those three things are the heart of genuine spiritual warfare? After this, Satan never confronts Jesus directly one-on-one ever again. His minions, yep, the demons, but never one-on-one. Why? Because the prince of this world comes and there's no part in me. Why? Because I will not use my power or my status for my own benefit. Blow that one and you're already done and dusted. 
I will not coerce. And I will not manipulate. Where's your passion? What are the things that drive us? What are the things we're wholeheartedly committed to? Now, he doesn't end there, even though we are now going to end with this. Because I've got all these people. It's an amazing scene. Remember all that? Just all these crowds around and just the tension can cut the air. These guys trying to strut their stuff. He just, boom, 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 right? And no one dares ask a question. And it's silent. At this, and, you know, the, the place is filled with people in Passover. And then it doesn't end because Jesus says, now I have a question for you. And it's the last question he will ask publicly in this narrative. And you think, what kinds of questions could you ask maybe? What question is he going to ask here? Think of all the ones he could have asked. And then here's the question. He says, how can the scribes say the Messiah is David's son when David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Now, have you thought about that? That is staggering. This is the last question. Jesus is going to ask publicly in this setting. And he's asking about what the Messiah. And the first thing he says, if if you start with the Messiah, son of David, you're already down the wrong track. Before he's Messiah, he's Lord. And if that's true, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And who then are we meant to love with all of our soul, all of our heart, I should say, soul, mind and strength, if not Jesus? Where's your passion? What's your whole heart all about? And it says, wonderful. I think I need to go to the next slide here. Yes, there we go. Uh, and Mark says, and the crowd listened to him with delight. It's a beautiful little note, right? Can I suggest something to you? You want to know delight? You want to know genuine delight? Did you know that Eden means delight? The Garden of Eden means delight. You knew that, right? Yeah. You want to know genuine delight? Why not try loving Jesus with all your soul, with all your heart, mind, all of those things, right? He's the one who alone deserves all of this. Now, here's the danger, folks. People talk about passion because it's world-changing. It'll drive people to do stuff that they might normally not otherwise do. So you can understand there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to enlist your passion in their projects. And some of those projects might even be good in themselves, and we've timed this perfectly. But if those projects are being touted in and of themselves, they're idols. There's something else, and as idols, they will destroy us. There's only one, and only one, who's the I am, who shall be the centre of all of this. Make sure that he's the one who alone gets our passion. And to finish, in the words of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, what does he say to us? Little children, and we are, keep yourselves from idols. Grace and peace. Thank you.